I'm Dr. Simon Clark, a physicist and science communicator. And I'm Dr. Shanice O'Mara, a mechanical engineer and broadcaster. Since the dawn of humanity, people have amassed in locations around the world to live, work and worship. Out of these settlements grew great cities, hubs of commerce, culture and innovation. But with over half the world's population living in a city, a figure expected to reach 7 billion people by 2050, they account for over 70% of global CO2 emissions. So with ageing offices, heat-leaking houses and stuttering smart cities, can we really work smart and live sustainably in the cities of the future? Welcome to Mission Responsible. So how is the harnessing of your inner spy going? It's difficult to say, really. Like, I've not had a performance review, you know, <laughs> from, from, from the higher-ups. I, I feel like I'm just kind of bumbling around, not accomplishing very much, making an arse out of myself, which is, to be honest, what I'm doing, like, in the rest of my life anyway. Mm. So it's going pretty well. Yeah, I feel like it's going par for the course, is probably about what I'd say, you know. Um, I don't know, what, what would your dream spy mission be? Well, this... You want to be doing the sustainability, just talking to interesting people. You wouldn't want to foil a scientist who's built a base on the moon and is pointing a laser at Earth and is going to split the planet in two. Wow. If someone was doing that... You'd be on their side. We have been seriously distracted by sustainability. <laughs> Coming up in this week's episode... You just make engineering sound so cool. It's a frontier that's being opened up right now, and we need engineers. Using these systems, you're optimising the office space. Simon, you just want a trophy, don't you? I want one. So, Shinny, what are the best and worst parts of living in a city? Best bits. Everything's accessible. Everything's pretty much on your doorstep. Mm -hmm. Worst bits, there is a severe lack of nature in a city. Yeah. I mean, London's not so bad for that. No, Lon London has 40% greenery, which is one of the highest percentages of greenery in a city. Yeah, you go to a lot of other places around the world and it's nowhere near that. I've been in cities before where I, re I realised something was a bit off and I realised it was because I couldn't hear birds. I think we're asking for a lot though, aren't we? We're asking for greenery and nature... But then... Sushi bars. Yeah. And tacos and everything and all in one place. And uh, yeah. But it can be done. I, I, don't th I don't think we're being unreasonable by wanting to be connected to nature and be connected to other people and be connected to eight different kinds of fast food. Actually, it really does kind of make the mind boggle of how much is required to make a city function. Yeah. We think about how much, how much waste the average person produces scale that up to, say, a city the size of London. It's an enormous quantity of waste. But then on the other end of the, of the pipe going into the city, how much food everybody needs, how much, how, how much toilet paper everybody needs, you know, all of these different commodities that go into keeping a city alive. And it's just a vast challenge. It's mind-boggling. Even though our cities are so remarkable and they're these incredible machines for keeping us alive, there's still so much more that we can do to make living and working in our cities better. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, Simon? That the only part of my reflection that I can lick is my tongue? Maybe we should just check out this week's mission. All right, I'll just activate the high-tech mainframe and... Scanning. Login accepted. Access granted. 
Welcome agents. This week, your mission, should you decide to accept it, is to explore how responsible engineering can help build the cities of the future. Preferably one where you can buy a pint for less than the cost of your first year's tuition fees. Agent Clark, your mission is to locate and go undercover in the world's smartest office building. What if I'm under the building? I'm not going to see very much. Agent Samara, your objective is to extract blueprints from the designer of a city that's literally out of this world. I wonder what they mean by that. It's going to be a hell of a commute. Briefing complete. Good luck, agents. This message will self-destruct in five, four, Wait, before you go, could you at least tell me... One. Pretty sure a smart building wouldn't let anything explode in it. So while Simon is off trying to find the world's smartest office building and see if it'll join his pub quiz team, I've been busy researching cities of the future. There are lots of exciting plans in the works from Toyota's Woven City to Oceanic's Busan, the world's first prototype floating city, which must make underground parking a little bit tricky. But I've been tasked to find a city that literally is out of this world. So I've been looking to the stars and found something rather special. Turns out that back in 2020, an organisation called the Mars Society ran a competition to design a future city-state capable of supporting one million people. Using an advanced intelligence database known as LinkedIn, I've managed to track down one of the architects behind the winning entry. Hologram programs activated. I'm Sam Ross. I'm a graduate aerospace engineer and I work at Nexus Aurora as an engineer of all things Martian. Hi, Sam. So you have a particular obsession. <laughs> That's very for fair. Mars, is that right? That's very <laughs> fair. Um, yeah, I've been working on things to do with space technology since I was about 10 and drawing spaceships. And then I joined Nexus Aurora as a project in 2020. And since then, I've been working on a bunch of different very cool projects to do with the the long-term future of humanity in space, as we like to say. Can you describe to me, if we ever did manage to live on Mars, what a typical day would be like? Well, hopefully, and I say hopefully, looking at my colleagues who are, who are trying to get this working, it'll look an awful lot like a day on Earth. It'll look like living in a house with a family or, or by yourself and moving through transit lanes, through walking and cycling and, and trains to get to a place of work and working in a perhaps a creative role, perhaps in manufacturing, perhaps in design, and then going to a communal space and going home. It should look like Earth. The difference is you look up and there's plastic over your head. <laughs> Ideally, if we can get Mars working correctly, it'll look an awful lot like Earth, but inside. Hopefully, you won't have to be suiting up into a big bulky pressure vessel every time you want to go and, and have a wander around the back garden. Um, that would be less than ideal. Would we actually have sunrise and sunset like we do here on Earth every 24 hours? Yeah. So Mars is it's quite a lot like Earth. It's got a pretty Earth-like um, day-night cycle. The temperature variation is actually surprisingly Earth-like. If you look at the sort of seasons and weather, it's a bit more extreme. But because everything will be indoors, there's a lot of really interesting opportunities to control it ourselves. We can say, well, do we want to have variable weather? What weather do we want to vary ourselves in? Do we want to choose a climate that we're living in? And do we vary the habitat's outdoor temperatures to be like the northern hemisphere, near the equator, something different. We can really do some interesting design that's going beyond what you can ever do on Earth and play with the climate on Mars, play with the times of day. It's a really interesting open-ended design problem. It feels like there are so many 
problems to solve in living on Mars, that maybe the first million inhabitants should all be engineers so they can just figure out all the problems. Well, as an engineer, and I think I'm sure you agree with this, I think that's a very good idea. Um, I'm sure a million engineers can only do only be a good idea. I think it's it's definitely the case that we'll see a lot of um, a lot of innovation coming out of this kind of program. And we saw that in the past. We've seen that in the the Apollo era was one of the that that drive to the moon gave us a lot of technology that was really, really influential elsewhere. It gave us a lot of work on microprocessors and integrated circuits. It gave us a lot of work on hydrogen fuel cells, which are now really key to the future hydrogen economy. In the decades after that, we had the sort of satellites era where we had a lot of development on solar panels becoming effective. And really a huge amount of technology came out of the space program. And that was with maybe 50 to 100,000 people working on Earth not full, not full time. They go home to their families in in America, or Europe, or or Russia, or China, and say, "Enough space for the day." If you're living on Mars, that problem is around you all the time. You can never get away from the problems of, oh, the atmosphere outside will kill you. The temperature is is really extreme. The geology is subtly different, and, and how we can get around that. And I think it's almost certain that the amount of creativity going on in that kind of place with incredibly intelligent engineers and, and scientists and, and researchers being thrust in an environment where they have lots of problems to solve, and it's a long way to phone home and find, find answers, <laughs> that's going to be a really creative environment for sure. Sometimes I encounter anger, people's anger in all the time and money that is invested in creating this what feels like a bit of a fantasy idea of living on Mars. What do you say to people that show that kind of resistance? I think it's a very fair point, And I think it's something the space community should uh, does do a quite good job of handling. And I think they should always do a better job. Um, my usual line is that the NASA budget annually is less than Americans' annual spending on Halloween chocolates. <laughs> so it's really compared to how much we could be spending. And of course, if you look at the military budget as a whole separate kettle of fish. There's a lot more we could be doing. Um, in the Cold War with the Apollo program, we did a lot more. We don't spend an awful lot of money on space, and the amount we get back from it is enormous. NASA frequently quotes that they have something like, I believe it's a 10 or 15 to 1 return rate on money invested in the space industry that comes back to Earth. And that's through investments in manufacturing, investments in new technology, satellites providing climate data that helps us do farming, helps us do disaster management. There's a huge range of things that space gives back to Earth. Occasionally, people sort of seem to think that, oh, we spent about a billion dollars on the Mars rover. We didn't pack a billion dollars worth of banknotes onto a Mars rover and just kick it into space. We spent a billion dollars on skilled engineers on Earth and having them advance the technology for what's possible in nuclear engineering, optics, in computer vision, in machine robotics, in this huge range of fields. It's a, it's a way of spending money on what makes innovation in manufacturing and science happen really effectively. And it's been, uh, I, said, I said already, with solar panels, with fuel cells, with electronics, it's been so successful with that. And that's only going to improve in the future. You just make engineering sound so cool. I love engineering. Engineering is a really great way, especially, and I, I, I don't want to toot the, toot the horn too much, but this kind of space engineering and this sort of medium to fast future space engineering is so much fun because it's a really wide open field. The problem I was looking at in my thesis of using um, conventional turbine machinery to compress CO2, it had been talked about all the time. Everyone I spoke to in the industry said, oh yeah, we reckon it will probably work. Sort of the envelope, back of the envelope calculation says that'll probably work. 
There's so many problems like that where everyone goes, oh yeah, I reckon that this will probably work. But we haven't had the time to just check. So I spent a, f- a few months, it was it was a master's thesis, it was quite a lot of work, it probably could have been shorter, um, checking if that'll work. And there's so many other problems like that where it's just a matter of getting a couple of smart engineers or a couple of designers or architects to just do some legwork and see if this idea works. And it's so much fun <laughs> because there's no, there's no right answer. It's not like problems in the commercial sector here on earth where you have a dozen startups doing the same thing or variations on the same theme. There's no right answer. There's no textbook. It's pure creative design and engineering. And it's really, really enjoyable. <laughs> so what exactly does Nexus Aurora do? That's a, that's a good segue. Um, so Nexus Aurora, this, this segues in very nicely because it's about getting people who want to get involved with space and don't have a pathway to do so easily, giving them a way to do it. So we were founded, we, I mean, founded, we sort of fell together gravitationally in 2020 <laughs> dur- during lockdown when everyone was bored out of their minds. The Mars Society, which is a, a really great organization run in the US that looks at sort of funding and researching and promoting Mars exploration, was running a competition about designing a million person city on Mars. And a bunch of us sort of, as I say, fell together gravitationally. We all wanted to work on it. We came, came together and sort of looked at the previous similar competitions, looked at the previous sort of state of the game and said, okay, last year it was won by some MIT professors. A few years before that, it was won by a large university team. Surely it's not possible to have a bunch of amateurs without any formal space background come together and do something like this. And at the same time, Surely it's not possible to have a million people living on Mars in comfortable conditions for any reasonable any reasonable design cost or, or complexity. And like all good engineering designs, it comes from two different surely you can'ts. And we went and did that. So we ran a completely open source, open to the internet project for about four months, doing the conceptual design of a city for a million people on Mars. And that covered pretty much everything you could reasonably want. It covered the politics, the education, the economics, the biomedical implications, the production of um, pharmaceuticals on Mars, semiconductors, industry, transport, orbital assets, exploration, science, human factors. It was an absolutely wild ride. We had about 150 people just working away like ants trying to get this thing to work correctly. And the great thing about it was because we were community driven, we weren't planning on doing anything about pharmaceuticals. And then suddenly, three people with backgrounds in the pharma industry showed up and said, I want to look at pharma on Mars. I want to look at how we do drug production without oil and how we do it in very small scales and how we can make it reconfigurable. And we said, hell yeah, do that. We'll put it in the paper. And I was working on that in that project. I was looking at transport. I was looking at robotics. I was looking at metal production, really just following the interest, which I think is the best way to do this kind of thing. And we handed in this this report. It almost killed half of us because it was uh, the deadline was tight. And then we won the competition by mistake, uh, which wasn't really the plan <laughs> to win the competition, and beat out all these academics and serious these large university teams and come up with a bunch of amateur volunteers working because we wanted to get involved with the space sector and didn't know how to, and to say, you know what, we've got a fresh perspective on things. And since then, it's been more of the same, but just different projects, essentially. So we've worked on um, large low-orbit space stations. We were the first to publish a paper on how to do a Starship, which is the SpaceX's new rocket, how to launch a space station on Starship and what that might look like. Since then, three or four companies have actually produced their own plans. 
which because we're open source, that's their their right to do. If they want to use our material as a starting point, that's completely their freedom. We've worked on autonomous robotics for Mars exploration. I've worked on thermal engineering for Mars. We've looked at moon bases. We've looked at the economics of space flight. We've looked at cyclers going back and forth from Earth and Mars and Mars's moons. Right now, we're looking at some projects on semiconductors. We're looking at fire evacuation and space safety, which is a whole new sector that we think is a completely new field, which is quite fun. Life support systems, analog space missions, the whole range. It's really just a chance to have a playground with the space sector and say, we reckon there's unanswered questions here. And I don't think anyone else is qualified to answer them either. So we might as well be. I just, I cannot describe just how stimulating and exciting and like inspiring and fascinating what you're saying is it's just it's so it's a frontier it's just it's a frontier like we're standing on the edge where i would bet money that within 20 years we'll have people on the surface of mars doing operations and that's going to be getting very large scale very 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 quickly we're looking at people sending people back to the moon within this decade for sure. We're looking at having not just one, but three or four space stations in Earth orbit permanently crewed from commercial companies running large-scale human operations. It's a frontier that's being opened up right now. And we need engineers. We need designers. We need architects. We need people who can do the work to make this thing happen. <laughs> well, that's that's something that, you know, you've completely busted as a myth because I have come across people that scoff at the idea of living on Mars, like, oh, that's never going to happen. It's just a lofty ambition. When I hear you say that in the next 20 years, it could be a reality, I'm just like, I don't know, humbled. Yeah, it's it's awesome. There's no other word for it. It's just a really awesome time to be alive and in the sector. Amazing. Thank you. Data transfer complete. Hologram program deactivated. The Mars City-State project sounds amazing, but just like getting theoretical physicists to agree how many dimensions they should use to split the bill, it may or may not happen in my lifetime. Time to see how Simon's getting on with something a little smaller scale, but which already exists today. I'm here in London, UK, to see if I can find what the 2021 Future Proof Awards voted as the world's smartest building. And as DesignSpark's second smartest spy stroke science communicator, all I'll say is this. Challenge accepted. My classified human intelligence source, aka Chris, our researcher, oh, sorry, Chris, tells me that the building goes by the codename Southworks, and is an office building located somewhere near Waterloo Station, which, to be honest, doesn't really narrow it down that much. So we are just south of the river in London, and we are walking along a nondescript street full of office buildings, but to my right there is a very fancy, very new looking office building, which is some lovely orangey yellow brick and a whole lot of glass in front of us. So if we go in, this should be Southworks. So if I call... Oh, that's us. Brilliant. We're in. Hi, where do I where do I check in? Just check in here. Right, so I've got a QR code. Actually. Yeah, so you just Oh. I have an appointment. Scan your QR code. Checking complete. Paperless. Brilliant. Okay. So you've just been hearing the voice of Frankie. Frankie Assad, I'm the building manager at Southworks. 
And we're also being joined today by... Um, Liam Dillon from Middlecap. We're the developers of the building. So we're right now in the reception, which I must say is a very pleasant space. I've been in quite a lot of office buildings, but this is a very nice reception. It feels very calm. There's Even though there's a lot of concrete around and it's sort of quite minimalist because there's acoustic tiles on the roof, it's actually not, doesn't feel bare. So should we start at the top of the building? Yep. I'm told this super smart building also has a Bream sustainability rating of outstanding. I don't really know what that means, but I can say that my spy training courses are also rated as outstanding, in that I haven't finished them yet. So that's, that's the office space. We're going up this way. Well, can we have a quick look at the... Yeah, of course you can. So this is an as yet unoccupied section of the office. Um, what systems can we see here? So above us, there's a whole lot of, uh, this is presumably uh, air conditioning temperature control. Yeah, so this is called four pipe fan coil system. So we've designed the building. It has a, a, a key metric for us is occupancy ratio. So we've designed this building to suit one person per eight square meters of office space. And um, this is four pipe fan core system. So these boxes on the ceiling do heating and cooling. Um, we also have the lighting, um, which you can see. And this general level of finish is called cate in offices. So it's not quite ready to move into because you, you need to bring your own meeting rooms and furniture, etc. Right. But everything else, uh, from an environmental point of view, is here. And if you look at the light fittings, you can see there's a little white disc uh, yes, sticking out yeah. to the bottom and that is the node for a system called bgrid which is our smart building system so that is picking up reading all the time temperature light levels that we mentioned when we talked about daylight harvesting um, humidity presence so is somebody here or not um, co2 which is important for meeting rooms and things like that when there's lots of people in a small space and it all feeds back to this system called BGrid, which enables the occupiers to access that information from an app so they can see what temperature the room is set to, whether it's getting too hot, whether the CO2 is too high, the humidity. So with the building app that we have, we wanted to give transparency to the occupiers so they know if they want the space really cold, they can see that it's happening and then through our BMS, they can also be made aware how much energy that takes. So a lot of these systems are in place to reduce the environmental impact and make the building more sustainability. But what you're saying is also, as a client here, you can tailor the space to your own needs. You can make it personalised. 100%. And you, you know, using these systems, you're optimising the office space and you know the tenants it's almost like a bespoke for them they're able to tailor it to exactly what they want which is something that you don't typically find in most office buildings and so as well as the sort of environmental positive impact there's a positive impact on people's productivity presumably definitely because i think if you're you know in an in a an office space where you've got multiple people different needs different wants you're able to almost not necessarily by sections but pretty close you know tailor that to what you would like without having an impact on the rest of the office so just i'm now just curiously wandering around uh, so oh wow oh there's very very minimal lights i've only just noticed that some of the lights are on light. there's so much natural light yeah. in this in this room so I mean, at the moment, we're in a space that has, well, I'm trying to count very quickly, I mean, about 30 lights, perhaps. Six lights out of 30, 40 
lights that are on. And that's the building just passively detecting yeah. you don't it, need it these lights on. data every 15 seconds. So, you know, if you were to move away from an area, um, I think the lights are slightly longer. But you, if you were to move away from an area, whatever you've set or set will dim back. As I walked through the building and saw all the windows, I couldn't help but think this would make a great location for the new spy movie I'm writing. It's the thrilling story of a dashing physicist who goes undercover as a temp and has to fix the photocopier. Working title, Tinker Paper Toner Spy. Interesting, sorry, I, I just took us on a detour. Should we, should we go up to the roof? Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, the kind of thing you'd expect to find on top of a hotel. <laughs> like, there's a lovely uh, seating area up here with a pretty stonking view of London. Uh, we've got the, the uh, Shard right in front of us. We can see across the Canary Wharf. Oh, blimey, wow. <laughs> oh yeah, the London Eye behind the lift. <laughs> there's a lot of solar panels here. Do you know how much power you can generate from these? It generates about 15% of the landlord load, so not the office space, but all of the base build systems and all the common parts of so the lift lobbies, stairs, all the power for that, about 15% across the year. It's about 200 square metres of PVs up here, which is it's quite a lot given the size of the building. Yeah, and you know we're in London, so we're not going to get a huge solar, <laughs> a solar load. <laughs> As I heard more and more about what the building was capable of, I was beginning to wonder whether I'd met my match. Right, so we're, we're in another space now. This is, uh, I, I'm going to say a little bit better than working from home, my, my, from my single office. This is um, more kitted out. This looks like it's almost ready for somebody to move in. There's lots of nice furniture and uh, desk space and a meeting room. So how do you keep the building at the right temperature for each client? I mean, that's typically in a, a building a huge use of energy. So how do you do that in a sustainable way? Uh think that the best way to explain it is by bgrid because bgrid is a system that allows us to see the activity of these systems um, in hand with the bms so i can go on to to bgrid and see that an area is particularly warm um, and then that allows me to sort of check out occupancy i can see if that room's got a lot of people in it and look at the daylight intensity is it you know because of solar gains all of that kind of stuff um, and then i can say okay if, if that meeting room's got, say, seven or eight people in, quite a small meeting room, let's drop the temperature slightly. And how does the building cool itself off? It's the same. So we have air handling units that do the heating and the chillers on the roof that do the cooling. So um, it's an air-cooled chiller. And we have the two of them uh, both doing 60% of the building. So we've got a little bit of resilience for that. But it also means then that when we don't need cooling so much, we can turn those machines right down to a better level than we would be able to if we just had a single big chiller. So that's very efficient from our point of view. The heating is via pre-air handling units in the building and we recover the waste heat from or the heat energy from the space so we can use that to temper the air that comes in so that we're not having to cool outdoor air or heat outdoor air to the right temperature so we're making use of that heat that we're recovering from the from the building office space so you just pulled up on your laptop you've got a, a picture of the room mm -hmm. with the different meeting meeting room 2.2 we're in the light island yeah so okay. these are light islands which means that they have been set up as per the floor plans at fit out in order for us to say, okay, there's a meeting room here, there's an open space there, let's put those lights together as, as a light island, and that's how we will control them. Okay. And so what you can do, presumably, is highlight one of these areas and change 
the light levels the we it's not necessarily what you can just change it's what you are able to see so i'm able to see the temperature so as you can see at the moment the colors on the sensors would indicate um whether it's too high too low so blue would be seen as too low green is really sort of you know comfortable temperatures reds and ambers are we're getting a bit hot we're getting uncomfortable and what we can see at the moment is that all of the sensors are green some of them close to the windows are a little yellower and that's because of thermal gain from the sun that's right and also noise intensity yes so we've got noise intensity lit up in blue it's different for the temperatures and the noise blue doesn't necessarily mean that it's one way or another it's just how um strong that blue color is so you can see there's some faint um there's lots of people around the kitchen at the moment yeah that's right um you've got humidity levels each sensor has a, has a time series here. So we're looking from 12 yesterday till now, and you can see there's a, a change over time. So there's, there's lots of different ones. You've got CO2 levels, occupancy levels, movement. So I can see right now how many people are in each area, um, which, again, is really helpful when it comes to temperature control because if you have a, a tenant that says, oh, you know, this meeting room is becoming too too hot and there's 14 people in a meeting room that sort of size you're going to understand why that meeting room is too hot and be able to adjust the temperature to suit and this is something the building does automatically or is this something that is done actively by the users i would say a bit of both because the the users can adjust it to their liking but there is a dead band sort of 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 plus two plus minus Yes. Plus minus two degrees. So the building is set up one way. It's a kind of a default setting. And then once people move in and start occupying it, they can tailor the settings to reflect how they do it. So if they know the kitchen, for example, is used all the time, they can change the temperature there to be set a little bit lower. And we can always track it back to the, to the B grid and um, see how it's working for them. So it's something that the tenants that have moved in have definitely started in one place and as they've learned more about how they use the space they've kind of tweaked and changed the way that they set the space up for themselves which was always the the ambition for the system and i noticed that when we were moving around the building you were using your phone to get from place to place and scan into rooms yes so that is the access control and it is in the end users app as well so the the office app that we use once they are registered with that app we can then register their access so they can use it via their phones so we're not you know using plastic and wasting cards but also i think it's quite helpful because everyone has their phone everyone always has their phone and if you don't have your phone you've got your apple watch or you've got these different systems whereas with a card if you lose it it's gone and you have to go to the desk to get a new one and it takes time so i think that this is quite helpful um and with visitors you're forever producing new cards new lanyards and things like that whereas here you don't have to worry about that It was clear that enemy agents were attempting to jam our equipment, so I decided to implement Protocol X. Frankie, Liam, thank you so much for showing us around the building. This was really interesting. And run away as fast as possible. Mission complete. Please evacuate immediately. So, Shinny, now that we've finished our missions, we're back at Mission Responsible HQ. What are your thoughts? Would you live in a Martian city? No, but that's because I'm really happy living here on Earth. But I got loads out of meeting Sam and hearing what he's been doing. Okay, so it's not, I want to live on Mars, but I want to take the lessons learned and then apply that to living on Earth. Yeah, I mean, the research, the technologies, everything... 
that they have been doing for that project is so applicable to Earth. I'm excited about the solutions we will have as a result of trying to live on Mars. Tell you what would actually be amazing on Mars in a Martian city. The Olympics. Think about the Olympics in one third gravity. It'd be amazing. (laughs) Think about what basketball would be like. How about you? Are you now a changed person, not needing to work from home anymore? I definitely could be tempted to work in an office. If it was like Southworks, if I could somehow move Southworks closer to my house. <laughs> like five seconds away, like it yeah. takes you to get yeah, to work Yeah, just now. roll out of bed and, and straight into that office. I definitely think I would. I think that sounds like a really neaty engineering challenge. What, moving a building to the other side of the country? Yeah. Oh yeah, we could definitely, you know, do a mission for that. Yeah. How hard can it be to steal a building? Intelligence accepted. Your final task is to brainstorm an idea for the perfect city of the future with Agent Cameron at D-Branch. Hello, agents. Wait, it's Greg Cameron, community manager at DesignSpark. Hi, Greg. Where did you come from? It's the latest camouflage tech. I call it the hoodie. Wear one and you'll blend in with engineers and scientists everywhere. There could be spies amongst us all over the place. Good point. So I'm after original, responsible and possibly outrageous ideas for what the perfect city of the future looks like for scientists and engineers. Okay, so you know how in a city you've got massive sports arenas, the 70,000-seat stadiums, and we convert those to collaborative problem-solving arenas where people come in from all over and your team, your local university's engineers will compete to construct or fix something on one half of the pitch and on the other half you have a visiting team and everyone gets really into it you buy merchandise you have the hoodie of your favorite professor everybody's talking about you know are we going to transfer this person over here there's been an exchange for two postdocs for this lecturer to me as a scientist that's what i think a perfect scientist city would look like you can tell he's an academic can't you absolutely i love the idea of knowledge transfer what do you think, Greg? I would like to see maybe something like the uh, on loan system. If ah. We're talking on the sports metaphors. So you could be, I'm on software, but can you loan me a hardware engineer? And vice versa, we could loan you some software guys. I'm all for that. Like the Olympic Park in London, for example, you have the stadium where the competitive science and engineering takes place, but there will be the Olympic Park next to it where you have people coming from all over and you can have themed buildings and it's, and it's subject specific. So it means that, you know, you would have you'd have the town that's known for, oh, this is the engineering town. This is the biology town. Then you can have the architecture in that town starting to represent it. Like uh, the, the exterior plumbing was made to look like the intestines of a vertebrate or something like that. You're just in your own little world, aren't you? I love it. I want to see the physics city with, the you know, the bubble chamber, the particle tracks. There's like a, a design motif on the buildings. Simon, you just want a trophy, don't you? I want one. I've never had one. I just want for once to be picked first for the team rather than the last person at the end. Well, on a completely different vein entirely, I'm thinking sponge cities and by that I mean city made out of sponges no well when it's in wet concept, it's really heavy in concept because we're also suffering from flooding mm-hmm. there's greater and greater risks every year so we need to do something about all of that excess water so how about bringing more plants and grassland and 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 more vegetation into the city so you could put 
grass on roofs, mm -hmm. which would be great for absorbing rainwater. You could have porous kinds of concrete rather than there just being runoff over concrete. It could absorb some that then gradually feeds water back into the surface. Exactly. And I'm making it sound like this is the first time anyone's ever come up with this, but actually this already exists. And I'm really into sort of like grow your own and... Oh, so could there be, yeah, like communal farmland almost as part of the city if you had vertical farming as part of it? Yeah, it's like letting nature kind of overtake the urban jungle while still maintaining a very urban system. Mm. See, I like this idea because... Um... Most cities have been designed around the climate that we used to have. So mm. in terms of designing for the future, a lot of that kind of architecture needs to be brought to the fore. And having the green roofs and having lots of greenery within the city changes the climate of the city by you know making it more moist and cooling it down. Like the temperature in parks within cities is so much lower than the built-up urban spaces. And Simon, just so that we're incorporating your idea... The this plant scientists. City, this green city could actually be a city that is continuously developed as a science experiment. This is this is this is the city where the plant scientists live. I've realized that what we've actually created is something akin to Pokemon, where you have like the grass type city and everything's really verdant and green. And you know, then we have the, the engineering city that's I imagine would be a bit more brutalist and like very practical. So it's really good information from you guys here. I'm really impressed with some of the ideas that you're coming up with. And um, I'm gonna get D Branch looking into this and working on it right away. Thanks, Greg. See you next time. Or will you? Ah, see what you've done there. Warning. Commence system shutdown. So, I think it's time to wrap up today's mission. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please do one of three nice things for us. That's right. We'd love it if you could leave a review, subscribe to the show, or recommend us to a friend. Or even better, all of those things, all at the same time. And don't forget, you can start your very own responsible engineering journey by signing up to DesignSpark's free design resources at designspark.com. Until next time, I've been Agent Shinise Omara. And I've been Agent Simon Clark. And this has been Mission, Mission Responsible. Mission Responsible was a Wide of the Chicken production for DesignSpark. Huge thanks to our guests, Sam Ross, Liam Dillon, Frankie Attard, and Greg Cameron. The series producer was Simona Rata, the researcher was Chris Armstrong, and the executive producer was Dan Page. <laughs>